Chapter thirty two of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter thirty two. This penitential mood kept her from naming the wedding day. The beginning of November found its date still in abeyance, though he asked her at the most tempting times. But Tess's desire seemed to be for a perpetual betrothal, in which everything should remain as it was then. The meads were changing now, but it was still warm enough in the early afternoons before milking to idle there a while, and the state of dairy work at this time of year allowed a spare hour for idling. Looking over the damp sod in the direction of the sun, a glistening ripple of gossamer webs was visible to their eyes under the luminary, like the track of moonlight on the sea. Nats, knowing nothing of their brief glorification, wandered across the shimmer of this pathway, irradiated as if they bore fire within them, then passed out of its line and were quite extinct. In the presence of these things he would remind her that the date was still the question. Or he would ask her at night, when he accompanied her on some mission invented by Mrs. Crick to give him the opportunity. This was mostly a journey to the farmhouse on the slopes above the vale, to inquire how the advanced cows were getting on in the straw barton to which they were relegated. It was a time of the year that brought great changes to the world of kine. Batches of the animals were sent away daily to this lying-in hospital, where they lived on straw till their calves were born, after which event, and as soon as the calf could walk, mother and offspring were driven back to the dairy. In the interval which elapsed before the calves were sold there was, of course, little milking to be done, but as soon as the calf had been taken away the milkmaids would have to set to work as usual. Returning from one of these dark walks, they reached the great gravel cliff immediately over the levels, where they stood and listened. The water was now high in the streams, squirting through the weirs and tinkling under culverts. The smallest gullies were all full, there was no taking shortcuts anywhere, and foot-passengers were compelled to follow the permanent ways. From the whole extent of the invisible vale came a multitudinous intonation. It forced upon their fancy that a great city lay below them, and that the murmur was the vociferation of its populace. "'It seems like tens of thousands of them,' said Tess, holding public meetings in their market-places, arguing, preaching, quarrelling, sobbing, groaning, praying, and cursing. Clare was not particularly heeding. "'Did Crick speak to you to-day, dear, about his not wanting much assistance during the winter months?' "'No. The cows are going dry rapidly.' "'Yes. Six or seven went to the straw barton yesterday, and three the day before, making nearly twenty in the straw already. Oh, is it that the farmer don't want my help for the calving? Oh, I'm not wanted here any more, and I've tried so hard to—' Crick didn't exactly say that he would no longer require you, but, knowing what our relations were, he said in the most good-mannered and respectful manner possible 
that he supposed on my leaving at Christmas I should take you with me, and on my asking what he would do without you he merely observed that, as a matter of fact, it was a time of year when he could do with very little female help. I am afraid I was sinner enough to feel rather glad that he was in this way forcing your hand." "'I don't think you ought to have felt glad, Angel, cause tis always mournful not to be wanted, even if at the same time tis convenient.' "'Well, it is convenient. You have admitted that.' He put his finger upon her cheek. "'Ah,' he said. "'What?' "'I feel the red rising up at her having been caught.' But why should I trifle so? We will not trifle. Life is too serious." "'It is. Perhaps I saw that before you did.' She was seeing it then. To decline to marry him after all, in obedience to her emotion of last night, and leave the dairy, meant to go to some strange place, not a dairy. For milkmaids were not in request now carving time was coming on. To go to some arable farm where no divine being like Angel Clare was. She hated the thought, and she hated more the thought of going home. "'So that, seriously, dear Tess,' he continued, "'since you will probably have to leave at Christmas, it is in every way desirable and convenient that I should carry you off then as my property. Besides, if you were not the most uncalculating girl in the world, you would know that we could not go on like this for ever.' I wish we could, that it would always be summer and autumn, and you always caught in me and always thinking as much of me as you have done through the past summer-time. I always shall. Oh, I know you will, she cried with a sudden fervour of faith in him. Angel, I will fix the day when I will become yours for always. Thus at last it was arranged between them, during that dark walk home, amid the myriads of liquid voices on the right and left. When they reached the dairy, Mr. and Mrs. Crick were promptly told, with injunctions to secrecy, for each of the lovers was desirous that the marriage should be kept as private as possible. The dairyman, though he had thought of dismissing her soon, now made a great concern about losing her. What should he do about his skimming? Who would make the ornamental butter-pats for the Angleberry and Sanborn ladies? Mrs. Crick congratulated Tess on the shilly-shallying having at last come to an end, and said that directly she'd set eyes on Tess she divined that she was to be the chosen one of somebody who was no common outdoor man. Tess had looked so superior as she walked across the Barton on that afternoon of her arrival that she was of a good family she could have sworn. In point of fact, Mrs. Crick did remember thinking that Tess was graceful and good-looking as she approached, but the superiority might have been a growth of the imagination added by subsequent knowledge. Tess was now carried along on the wings of the hours, without a sense of a will. The word had been given, the number of the day written down. Her naturally bright intelligence had begun to admit the fatalistic convictions common to field-folk and those who associate more extensively with natural phenomena than with their fellow-creatures, and she accordingly drifted into that passive responsiveness to all things her lover suggested, characteristic of the frame of mind. But she wrote anew to her mother, ostensibly to notify the wedding-day, really to again implore her advice 
It was a gentleman who had chosen her, which perhaps her mother had not sufficiently considered. A post-nuptial explanation, which might be accepted with a light heart by a rougher man, might not be received with the same feeling by him. But this communication brought no reply from Mrs. Durbeyfield. Despite Angel Clare's plausible representations to himself, and to Tess of the practical need for their immediate marriage, there was in truth an element of precipitancy in the step, as became apparent at a later date. He loved her dearly, though perhaps rather ideally and fancifully than with the impassioned thoroughness of her feeling for him. He had entertained no notion, when doomed he had thought to an unintellectual bucolic life, that such charms as he beheld in this idyllic creature would be found behind the scenes. Unsophistication was a thing to talk of, but he had not known how it really struck one until he came here. Yet he was very far from seeing his future track clearly, and it might be a year or two before he was able to consider himself fairly started in life. The secret lay in the tinge of recklessness imparted to his career and character by the sense that he had been made to miss his true destiny through the prejudices of his family. "'Don't you think twould have been better for us to wait till you were quite settled in your Midland farm?' she once asked timidly. A Midland farm was the idea just then. Mm, "'To tell the truth, my Tess, I don't like you to be left anywhere away from my protection and sympathy.' The reason was a good one, so far as it went. His influence over had been so marked that she had caught his manners and habits, his speech and phrases, his likings and his aversions, and to leave her in farmland would be to let her slip back again out of accord with him. He wished to have her under his charge for another reason. His parents had naturally desired to see her once at least before he carried her off to a distant settlement, English or colonial and as no opinion of theirs was to be allowed to change his intention, he judged that a couple of months' life with him in lodgings, whilst seeking for an advantageous opening, would be of some social assistance to her, and what she might feel to be a trying ordeal, her presentation to his mother at the vicarage. Next he wished to see a little of the working of a flour-mill, having an idea that he might combine the use of one with corn-growing. The proprietor of an old water-mill at Wellbridge, once the mill of an abbey, had offered him the inspection of his time-honoured mode of procedure, and a hand in the operations for a few days whenever he should choose to come. Clare paid a visit to the place some few miles distant, one day at this time to inquire particulars, and returned to Talbothays in the evening. She found him determined to spend a short time at the Wellbridge flour-mills. And what had determined him? less the opportunity of an insight into grinding and bolting, than the casual fact that lodgings were to be obtained in that very farmhouse which, before its mutilation, had been the mansion of a branch of the d'Urberville family. This was always how Clare settled practical questions, by a sentiment which had nothing to do with them. They decided to go immediately after the wedding, and remain for a fortnight, instead of journeying to towns and inns. "'Then we will start off to examine some farms on the other side of London that I have heard of,' he said, "'and by March or April we will pay a visit to my father and mother.' Questions of procedure such as these arose and passed, 
and the day, the incredible day on which she was to become his, loomed large in the near future. The 31st of December, New Year's Eve, was the date. His wife, she said to herself, could it ever be? Their two selves together, nothing to divide them, every incident shared by them? Why not? And yet, why? One Sunday morning Is Hewitt returned from church and spoke privately to Tess. "'You was not called home this morning.' Footnote. Called home. Local phrase for publication of bands. End of footnote. "'What? It should have been the first time of asking to-day,' she answered, looking quietly at Tess. "'You went to be married New Year's Eve, dearie.' The other returned a quick affirmative. Then there must be three times of asking, and now there be only two Sundays left between." Tess felt her cheek paling. Is was right. Of course there must be three. Perhaps he had forgotten. If so, there must be a week's postponement, and that was unlucky. How could she remind her lover? She who had been so backward was suddenly fired with impatience and alarm lest she should lose her dear prize. A natural incident relieved her anxiety. Is mentioned the omission of the bands to Mrs. Crick, and Mrs. Crick assumed a matron's privilege of speaking to Angel on the point. "'Have ye forgotten a Mr. Clare? The bands, I mean?' "'No, I have not forgot em,' said Clare. As soon as he caught Tess alone he assured her, "'Don't let them tease you about the bands. A license will be quieter for us, and so I have decided on a license without consulting you. So if you go to church on Sunday morning you will not hear your own name, if you wished to." "'I didn't wish to hear it, dearest,' she said proudly. But to know that things were in train was an immense relief to Tess, notwithstanding, who had been well-nigh feared that someone would stand up and forbid the bands on the ground of her history. How events were favouring her! I don't feel easy," she said to herself. All this good fortune may be scourged out of me afterwards by a lot of ill. That's how heaven mostly does. I wish I could have had common bands." But everything went smoothly. She wondered whether he would like her to be married in her present best white frock, or if she ought to buy a new one. The question was set at rest by his forethought disclosed by the arrival of some large packages addressed to her. Inside them she found a whole stock of clothing, from bonnet to shoes, including a perfect morning costume, such as would well support the simple wedding they planned. He entered the house shortly after the arrival of the packages, and heard her upstairs undoing them. A minute later she came down with a flush on her face and tears in her eyes. How thoughtful you've been," she murmured, her cheek upon his shoulder. Even to the gloves and handkerchief. My own love, how good, how kind! No, no, Tess, just an order to a tradeswoman in London, nothing more. And to divert her from thinking too highly of him, he told her to go upstairs, and take her time, and see if it all fitted, and if not to get the village seamstress to make a few alterations. She did return upstairs and put on the gown. Alone she stood for a moment before the glass, looking at the effect of her silk attire. 
and then there came into her head her mother's ballad of the mystic robe that never would become that wife that had once done amiss, which Mrs. Durbeyfield used to sing to her as a child so blithely and so archly, her foot on the cradle, which she rocked to the tune. Suppose this robe should betray her by changing colour, as her robe had betrayed Queen Guenever. Since she had been at the dairy she had not once thought of the lines, till now. End of chapter 32